Uh, with episode 370. Today's going to be an interesting episode. It's going to be sort of a, a redo of a, of a topic that I discussed a very long time ago, back in the days when I was in the car, before I had even a good microphone in the car, and the crappy audio where you could hear the wheel noise and the tire noise, and you could hear you know, all the general surrounding noise that went with the show back then. And we're going to add something to it that I've also discussed in other shows. What we're going to talk about today is situational awareness and its counterpart, normalcy bias. And normalcy bias at the time was something I hadn't gone deeply into yet. I hadn't really studied it in depth yet. So I didn't make the contrast back then. I'll do that for you today. This is going to be an important topic because I'll tell you what, there's... uh, When we first start talking about this here in just a minute, we're going to talk about kind of the extremes, what situational awareness means for commanders on the battlefield, for instance, or for uh, medical professionals. And then we're going to talk about the extremes of normalcy bias. And the extremes are easy to recognize and understand the need for. And then often we lose how those things apply to us. So I'm going to try to break that down for you today and explain why these concepts are important, why you need to think about them, and why you need to make them part of your emergency planning and your day-to-day living as well. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and knock out um, our typical housekeeping. And we start, as always, with our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is Ready-Made Resources. Check out Ready-Made Resources for all your prepping and self-reliance and self-sufficiency needs. These guys are great. Make sure you download their solar catalog if you haven't done that. It's a, it's a great resource, a really great company to do business with. Stand up folks over there uh, that will take care of you. Um, Next up today, Tactical Response Gear. Check out Tactical Response's website for just about anything that you could want in the tactical genre of things. Uh, We've had people say that uh, Tactical Response Gear is like a, a crack addict's dealer. Uh, if you are into the tactical. They also have really great training. James Jaeger provides some of the best training that's available in the industry, so check out his other website, Tactical Response, as well. Really good, solid sponsors. Been with us right from the beginning uh, and has always made sure that we're well taken care of. So make sure that when you have the opportunity to send some business of that type out, you pick those two sponsors and start with them and uh, go outside of the fold only if they don't have what you need. All right, with that, let's move on. Uh, Today, I want to remind you to check out our gear shop. Yesterday we gave away two t-shirts. We had a big response uh, to that and we do have winners. Uh, You haven't been notified yet if you've won. Uh, I'll be sending uh, SysWolf an email as soon as I get off with today's show and the winners will know before you actually hear this. So uh, if you've won you know by now. Don't send any more from yesterday's contest. It is over. Done. The end. Alright. Moving on. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only to members which includes a, a whole hand, a whole good 
uh, collection of videos that I've done that are not available on YouTube, things like Becoming a Better Rifleman. Uh, you'll also get a tremendous number of discounts, discount, uh, a free discount membership to Safe Castle Royal, uh, free prefer preferred me uh, member discount to uh, Western Botanicals. Those two alone are worth 80 bucks. The cost of supporting the show that way is $50 a year or $5 a month. So those two benefits alone pay your membership back from day one. That's how cool it is now. And there's a laundry list of discounts that are available to you there as well. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and wrap up the housekeeping. And let's get on to today's subject, which is going to be, again, normalcy bias and situational awareness. Let's start out with a basic, simple thing. Let's ask and answer the question. What is situational awareness? What does that mean? What is that term? Is it just a cool term that we use, or is there some real substance behind it, some real meaning behind it? Situational awareness is exactly what it says. It's being aware of everything that impacts your current situation and that should be taken into consideration in your current decision-making. And let's start off kind of the, 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 the big view of it. What is it when it's talked about as a tactic? or what it's talked about from a, 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 a high level. For a commander on the battlefield, situational awareness is where are his troops, where are the enemy troops, uh, at, at a very big level, right, a, a very huge macro level. Uh, and, and then with a lot of micro components that come into that. So, exactly, okay, we have forces here. How many of them? How are they armed? What is their situation? What is their ammunition supply? How long can they be self-sufficient? How long will it be before they need backup? This enemy position. So, the more situational awareness you have in that environment, as a military commander, the better decisions you can make about how to deploy your forces and how to move them around. Okay, But that doesn't seem like something that really applies to you and me now, does it? Because we're not directing two or three combat brigades in a major theater of operation. Hell, we're not even directing a platoon. We're directing ourselves, our spouses, a couple kids, a couple dogs, and a couple cats, right? So how does that apply to us? Well, it applies to us in the same way. And it's amazing to me how many people walk through life with zero situational awareness. Um, I tell this story from time to time. I'll tell it again today. There was a time, and my wife was terrible with this. I think she's gotten a lot better over the years. But many years ago, we were walking through Allentown, Pennsylvania. We walked by a group of Latino-American males, all young, all in their teens to early 20s. Um, I don't think they were a threat at all to us individually. Uh, but I was wearing a nice watch, a ring. My wife was wearing her wedding ring. We had our son with us. We were in a part of town that we had never been to before, but it seemed like a nice part of town. It didn't seem like a place where the situation really would be dangerous. But there's a lot of bad, as small a place as Allentown is, there's a lot of bad stuff that goes on in Allentown. And there's a lot of especially Latino gang activity. Uh, and I don't think these gentlemen, I'm not putting them down, had anything to do with that. But as we walked by, one of them looked directly at my left hand, eyeballed my watch and my ring, looked at me and kind of gave me the, you know, like the sh shoulder shrug, without actually shrugging the shoulders. It was in his eyes. Like, are you sure you want to do this? Now, what that told me was, we're not going to bother you. But I know this place, and you don't belong here, and you stick out. And you shouldn't be walking down this road. Um, 
So I immediately grabbed my wife, spin her 180 degrees around, go back and get in the vehicle, and we were in that part of town to go to a specific store. We drove directly in front of the store, parked there instead of walking through town. It was a nice day. That's why we were going to walk in the first place, in, out, and gone. Now, her response was, you've overreacted. There was no threat. Those guys weren't going to hurt us. It took a long time for her to grasp my reasoning and logic for taking those steps. Now, here's why I did that. One, I believe that th those guys were cluing me in that I didn't belong there, that I stuck out, and that there was a danger to myself and my wife and my son, who was quite young at the time. Two, the consequences of acting were nothing. All it cost us was two seconds to turn around and get back in the vehicle, driving a couple blocks instead of walking a couple blocks, and going in and out of the store. So even if I'm wrong, nothing bad happened because I took the action. And number three, the consequences of not taking the action may have been severe. And with some of the people that we noticed as we drove down the neck, at least I noticed because my situational awareness was high, that I noticed driving down those last two blocks, I believe there was a credible threat from my micro-threat assessment, which is something else we'll get into today. So that is an example of real-world situational awareness. And we're going to expand on that, because that's a very small component of what it should be in totality. Let's talk for a minute about normalcy bias now, though. What is normalcy bias? Let's also look at it in a macro level, the big top level, the way it's normally tossed around in emergency planning. Normalcy bias is the belief that everything will just be okay and don't worry about it no matter what the hell is going on uh, around you. And it's extremes, it's easy to recognize. It's the old lady that sits in her recliner knitting while the roof's blowing off her house and the flood waters are rising. It's the person in the disaster movie the old lady, it's usually an old lady, and I'm, I bet you it's not usually old ladies that have the problem. But in movies, the character's always like an old lady, you know. And she's like, it'll be fine. And you're screaming at the screen, right? Get out, you idiot, go. And you think that the people that exhibit this behavior are just idiots. They're just morons. And that you would never be guilty of this yourself. Well, if we break that down, to the level that impacts you and I on a daily basis, normalcy bias is the counterpart of situational awareness. Why, when we walk through that little scene that I just explained to you, that seems so obvious now, if you're listening to my story, that there was indeed reason to take action there, okay? why did my wife not see it? Why did it take years for even after reviewing it for her to go, yeah, I guess maybe that was the right idea? Normalcy bias. Now, my wife's not the person that if there's, uh, you know, stuff flying through the air and cows going by from a tornado, is going to be sitting in, you know, flipping the TV channel and going, why is all this annoying weather stuff in the way I'm looking for my soap operas? That's not her. She'll never be in that extreme situation and be a victim of normalcy bias. See, it's the subtle things that creep into our lives that compromise our ability to act in time and make good decisions. It's the part that's not easy to react. Here's another example of normalcy, normalcy bias. 
And how plenty of people that would scream at that old lady in that disaster movie, Get out! Go, you dumbass! Go, 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 go! Right? You're yelling, you're throwing stuff at the TV when you watch movies like that, right? Okay, well, then why in 2008, as the stock market had whittled its way from, you know, 14,800 down into the 13s and down into the 12s, and every honest financial expert was going, a crash is coming, a crash is coming, a crash is coming, and two or three idiots would be, you know, wheeled out, the Susie Ormans, the Jim Cramers, and all these other pinheads were like, just stay the course, and stay long in your investments, you're not retiring for 20 years, and, you know, even if you're a retirement age, the market's going to go through it for extra, and, and, and countless Americans sat, when all they had to do was make one phone call, to their financial services company, and say, take my money, put it in the cash, and let's just wait six months and we'll put it back in. And we knew it was the right thing to do. And we knew we should do it. Most of us have electronic access to our 401ks, our IRAs, log in, convert from stock funds to money market. Ten seconds. All it would have took. Instead, instead, the big people pulled their money, pulled the floor out from underneath the market, took their profits, and countless Americans suffered from normalcy bias. It'll all be okay. It'll all work itself out in the end. It'll go back up. See, that's what we don't realize. If we had been situationally aware, some of us were, and we weren't partaking in normalcy bias, there was no reason to get hurt by the latest stock market crash. Especially if you're, you know, the people that, well, I was nearing retirement. I was two years away from retirement, and now I can't retire for another eight years. Whoever you have as a financial advisor should be strung up. But they were also suffering from normalcy bias. And they're training. And most financial advisors are not trained to be financial advisors. They're relationship salespeople, and they can't plan anything. All they can do is diversify you into mutual funds and make their riff. Right? That's all they do. They make a commission by putting you into funds. That's it. They might fill out a bunch of forms. They might show a bunch of projections. Computer does all that. And they don't know their head from their ass when it really comes down to it. Most financial advisors are broke. I know. I, see, I used to see them all the time. Back in my days when I was running a company and trying to grow it and going to things like Chamber of Commerce mixers. You know, I used to say it was they were they, them and real estate people at Chamber of Commerce mixers. They were like roaches. And I don't mean that like, you know, they were bad people. I just mean how many of them there were. You could go over to a table and kick it, and like 20 financial advisors came out from underneath it. Hey, how you doing? Let me talk to you about your financial future. You go kick another table. Hey, are you looking to buy? Are you looking to sell? They were everywhere. And then you leave and you walk out and you watch all these financial advisors that want to tell you how to run your finances get into cars that look like they're held together with duct tape. Why? Normalcy bias. And why do we then invest our money with someone and when he's a financial advisor and we look at his lifestyle and go, man, this guy doesn't know he's doing money. He's a financial advisor. It's the kind of guy you're supposed to use, Right? You start to see how these things actually creep into your lives. It's very important that you understand when we talk about situational awareness and normalcy bias 
it's at the situational level. We don't need the type of, 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 of knowledge that a military commander needs. It's not even relevant to us, other than the methodology behind it. And at the normalcy bias, it doesn't have to be to the extreme where someone's sitting in the middle of a house that's burning, saying everything will be just fine. That it's the subtleties, the, the subtle lack of awareness, and the subtle creeping of normalcy bias that hurt the most people the most often and prevent us from following our primal instincts that generally will tell us what we need to do if we'll just listen pay attention be aware and accept the fact that everybody in this world is not your friend I think women struggle with this more than men let's actually look at that a little bit deeper and how it actually hurts women in day-to-day -day things and I can tell you it does I mean you wouldn't think this as um, any impact on something as simple and mundane as buying a car, would you? But it does. And I remember many, many years ago, before I even met my wife, there was a lady I knew that was buying a car. And this was, oh God, almost 15 years ago, I guess, maybe 16 years ago, something like that. Around 94. I was just a kid, really. And uh, this gal was going to buy this car. I don't remember what it was. It was like $16,000 she was going to pay for this car. She goes, I'm getting a really good deal. It's a, it's a, the, the sticker price is seventeen four, and I'm getting it for sixteen. And we were kind of still in a little recession back then. And I'm like, these guys need to sell cars. That's, I can help you get a better deal. She goes, well, I got everything ready to go. I just have to go down there and sign. I said, let me go with you and talk to these guys. Give me 20 minutes. And... If, after 20 minutes, you still want to give them $16,000, go ahead. We went down there, we talked to the guy, and he said, yeah, this is the best deal I could do. She's getting a great deal. Come on, bud, you know she's getting a great deal. I said, I don't know she's getting a great deal. He said, what do you mean you don't know? I said, I don't know that she's getting a great deal. I haven't discussed anything with you. All I know is the price, and you've knocked off about 1400 bucks. I know there's some pretty good deals out there. It seems like there's better advertised deals than that. Seems like there's better deals up and down the highway. I don't know that she's getting the best deal that she can from you. And he said, "Well, what do you, what would you think if we were able to take another 500 off?" And I said, "I don't know. I really don't know." I said, "All you've told me now is that you just said she was getting the best deal that she could, and now you're telling me there's a better deal." Maybe you should look a little bit harder at what kind of a good deal you can offer. So he comes back, and we end up with a price that's like $800 less. And I say, okay, what is she buying, by the way? And the guy goes, well, it's this car. I was like, I know what car it is. What are, what are all these costs? And it turned out they had built in an extended warranty into the price. It was 1200 bucks. The car came with a 40,000 or 36,000 mile warranty or something like that. I said, do you want an extended warranty? And this girl drove like 20 miles a day. Right? And, I'm, and she was like buying a starter car. She's going to be upgrading in a couple of years. I'm like, you'll never have this car past 36,000 miles. You'll never have this car three years. You don't need this. So that comes off. In the end, 20 minutes saved that person. Almost twenty five hundred dollars. Why? 
Because everybody's not your friend. And that's part of situational awareness. And that was this girl's problem. This, was, this guy was nice. He smiled. He said, let me see what I can do for you. He was respectful when he talked to her. But he wasn't her friend. He wasn't giving her the best. And she believed she was getting the best deal he could give her because he said so. And there was a number difference between what he gave her and what was on the sticker. Backhanding her with an extended warranty that would never be used in her situation. See, and I see men do this too, but nowhere near as much as women do. Women have this, this, this peacemaker mode, which is a wonderful gift. But if left unchecked, what it does is it, it makes you try to, to, to accommodate people and expect that people are generally nice and generally decent. There's a place for that. But that is earned, not just given. You need to look at the world with everybody is potentially dangerous to you. And when people demonstrate through concrete action that they're not, then they earn trust. Until they do that, they do not have it. That absolutely is part of situational awareness. Without that, you're going to have real problems, folks. And I am speaking a little bit directly to females right now because you struggle with this more than men. But men struggle with it too. Men generally struggle with it with women. You see, women is not being a threat. Let me tell you, there's a lot of women in prison right now. And they didn't get there because they smiled and flirted with people. So everybody needs to take that message to heart. The next thing we need to talk about here is how can we improve our situational awareness? How can we begin to counteract normalcy bias? Well, we can do it in a lot of ways, but one of the biggest things that we can do is just start to plan on the fly. What I mean by planning on the fly. Um, when we go to a restaurant, my wife and I go into a restaurant, I actually think about where we're going to sit. Sometimes I have a choice, and I put a seating advantage when I do that. And what I mean is we sit towards the rear where there's an emergency exit. My back goes toward that door, and I'm looking out. I can see the majority of, of, of area where a threat would come from, and I know everything around me. Sometimes I'm seated in a place because that's the way it's going to work. If I see a, a highly uh, disadvantageous seat, I'll ask for a different table if it's possible. Once I'm at a table, if I have to deal with the situation, I will still try to put myself in a position where I can see the vast majority of area where a potential threat would come from. I know where the people around me are. Even though I might be having pleasant dinner conversation with my wife, I'm evaluating people around me. Who looks like they're most likely to be a danger? Who looks like they're most likely to go into absolute panic if something goes wrong? How can we get out of here quickly? What things exist that would be a good source of cover and or concealment? Should we have to deal with some nut job like the Lubies incident that happened in the 80s, coming in and shooting the place up? If there was a fire, where's the kitchen? That's the most likely place a fire is going to come from. What is our escape route if the fire's coming from the kitchen? Who's in the way? Who can we help? who may be an impediment. Now, I've never had to use that information. But I'm always asking those questions. Therefore, I have a heightened sense of situational awareness. When I'm walking through a crowd of people, 
Who looks completely oblivious and unaware? Who looks like they're paying attention to what's going on? Who would physically be a threat to me? Who would not? Who could I easily move? Who would I have trouble moving? What's going on right now? If this crowd panicked, what would it be its general direction of flow? If that happened, how would I be able to utilize the flow and not be caught up in it? See, I ask these questions. And it can be anywhere. It doesn't even have to be in a crowd. It doesn't have to be in a restaurant. Sit in your home. If someone broke in right now, where would be their most likely point of entry? Am I armed? If I'm not armed, how would I arm myself? What would be my response? What would be the order of my response? If there's somebody else at home with me, how would I protect them if they were in a defenseless position? If I was compromised where the, the, the threat ended up between me and the people that I, des I desire to protect, how would I rectify that? How would I remedy that? If there was a fire in our home, how would I get out? See, simply by running scenarios, your situational awareness becomes heightened. And what you'll find is that wherever you go, you're looking at things and thinking, not just threats either. What can I do with that? If you're survival-minded, when you walk through Home Depot or Lowe's, you should have situational awareness about the things around you. What, you know, that's designed to do this, but what else could be done with that? How could that be you know, rigged up with some other things to create something? That's part of situational awareness, too. It's one of the most important things you can do in your life. It also helps you develop vision. And I don't mean the ability to see well. I mean the ability to see somewhat into the future. Not in a clairvoyant way, but to have vision. In other words, to be able to stand in an empty backyard and see in your mind what it would look like if there was a deck and a pool. Okay, And that transcends into all different types of things with modern survivalism. To look at a home and go... Huh, if I'm going to store food in this home, and I don't want all my food in one location, where can I visualize multiple places to store food? You know, the documentation package that I talk about. Do you keep in your vehicles? Everyone you need to talk to. That was a vision that became something physical. I had heard people talk about the importance of numbers and things like that, but putting it all together the way that I discuss, I, I, I'm the only source of that information that I know, assembled that way. And it was because I could see all of this stuff that people talked about, and I was able to see, well, how, and just in, in your head, how would this best be packaged together? What would be most useful? What type of order would go behind it? Okay, and then I was able to look into the future and go, great, we have one. Now, my wife is elsewhere in her vehicle. She has it, I don't. I have it, she doesn't. Huh, we need two. We need one for every vehicle, and hell, we should have one in the house too. Then, I was able to see beyond that and say, hey, look, they better be uniform. Because if I'm talking to someone who's panicked on the other end of a phone line, or on a radio communication, I need to be able to say, go to page 13, halfway down the page, see that? That's what we're talking about. We need to have mirror images. Well, all of that comes from situational awareness of things that have not even occurred yet. It is so important to train your mind this way. 
Because let me put it to you this way. Some of the people that brought some very interesting things up about the earthquake in Haiti. Hey, if you have all your food in your home and all your preps in your home and your home collapses into a pile of rubble, you've lost it all. Yeah, but if you're not dead, you still have your mind. What you do matters. I tell you that all the time. And how you think impacts what you do and your time to response. In fact, I tell you that time to response might be the most important component of situational awareness. There are times when you're getting into kind of a, a dangerous situation where you have almost an unending amount of time to respond. It, the situation can be averted so easily. But once the situation becomes critical, you get into a situation where it's at times not possible to respond quickly enough. And that's why you have to always be looking for the hidden danger. And that's not about paranoia. I don't want people to come away from this kind of being paranoid and thinking, oh, there's a guy trying to come get me at every instance. It's more of if someone did or if something did present danger in this environment, how would I respond to it? Again, let's look at the way they play off each other, these two concepts of situational awareness and normalcy bias. Researchers believe that normalcy bias comes in to uh, be a problem because your brain will take an average of eight seconds to process new information even when you're in a calm, relaxed state. And the more stress that you become under, the less able you become to process at all or specifically quickly new information. Now, what you may be thinking is those numbers are completely wrong. If I'm in a situation where I'm standing on the street and I receive a new piece of information, a car is speeding at me, it doesn't take me eight seconds to respond to that. I can respond much quicker, and thankfully, that will save my life. You're right about the ability to respond quicker, but see, the thing is, you're not responding to new information. This is where we miss it. This is where, we, this is where the, the two overlap and become almost one and the same. One to the extreme left and one to the extreme right. Almost like a political spectrum. And here's how I mean that. When you see that car coming, there's certain information you already have. Cars are dangerous. Cars move fast. Cars run people over. When people get run over by cars, they die. That's not new information. That's existing information. You also, if you're situationally aware, know you're standing in a street. So you have an awareness, hopefully, I'm standing in a street. Cars drive on streets. I need to be watching for cars. If cars come, I need to move quickly so I don't get run over. See, that's all the situational awareness. And with that in place, when you receive one piece of information, a car is coming. You've already, you're already in, in, in a, a mental state to react. So none of that is new information except that the fact that now you must act on what you already knew. So it was all pre-existing information. That's why you have a quick response time. Guy hitting a baseball. Standing at home plate. Hands are up. Baseball bat is back. He's seen a ball come a thousand times like this. The only piece of information he has to process is how fast and where and when do I swing this bat. But all the other information that he needs, 
he's already situationally aware of. Now, can you see taking a person that's never seen the game of baseball in their life, ever, doesn't know what the game's about, handing them a bat, say, go stand to the, the, uh, to the left side of that little white thing right there. Do whatever you think you're supposed to do. What are the odds that they're going to hit the first ball pitch to them? See, because they don't have the information. It's all new information. I bet you if the guy throws the ball once or twice, by the third time, the human mind is going to kind of put the pieces together. Go, this is pretty logical. I think I'm supposed to hit that thing. But it's going to take a minimum of eight seconds, in most instances, for the mind to take all that new information, process it, and spit it out. Now, if while he's up there, you got a bunch of people yelling at him, calling him names, and let's say we've stripped him of his clothes and he's standing there naked, he's probably never going to figure out what to do. Too much new information, too much stress. This is what causes normalcy bias. So, it's like saying that you know, a certain d- a disease is caused by a certain bacteria. Well, if we're exposed to that bacteria and we provide a certain drug that counteracts that bacteria, we kill the bacteria and we cure the illness. Well, when you're dealing with normalcy bias, what kills normalcy bias is situational awareness. See how they are absolutely inseparable. This is so important to understand. So the only thing that you have to do is constantly be thinking, what would I do if, what's going on now, where is the most likely threat to come from now, how do I deal with this now? Do that, and it's almost impossible to end up in a situation where all the information that you need to respond is new. See, that's the key. That's the key. You want to minimize How much of the information coming into your decision-making process is brand new information? To an absolute minimum. To where everything else is already planned, and all that new piece of information does is kick in the contingency that's already set up. You have that, and and this is no different than concealed firearms training. It's exactly the same thing. I've never heard it explained this way, but it's what it is. If we constantly train a drill... Let's say the seated at the restaurant drill. And we have our our concealed gun on us. We're sitting down. And we have a simulated opponent that comes in and starts shooting at people. Once that drill has been trained into our mind, the concept of pushing the table over for cover, pushing down someone next to us to the ground, drawing, taking aim, and firing can happen in a split second. But see, how much of the information is new? Actually, none of the information is new. You already had all the information and all the planning and all the processing. You've simply now engaged the process. Whereas, if you've never been through any training like that, and you've never even thought about that situation, there's a good chance that you could sit there behind that table and end up shot when you were the only person in there with the means to return fire. Does that make sense? Oh, crap. There's a guy with a gun. New information. Never thought about it that way before. Right? I have a gun. Not situationally aware. Always thinking it's there. 
I need to boom. Dead. Two seconds time. Two seconds time, you should be on the ground and already have returned fire. In that type of a threatening situation. But the person that's never drilled it, that's never planned it out, that's never thought it, mine can't work that fast, especially under stress. And trust me, when gunshots are going off around you, it's stressful. You have to have it planned out. Another military situation. I went through a course called Combat Lifesavers. Combat Lifesaver is not a traditional medic. If you're a Combat Lifesaver certified individual, what that means is that you have the ability and the knowledge to assess a severely traumatic injury and with no real concern for long-term anything, give that person the ability to survive until proper medical attention is taken, uh, is taken over. Things like dealing with a sucking chest wound. And when you go through that course, at the end of it, what they do is they take soldiers and they lay them out in different stations. They put torn clothes on them. Right? And in our situation, they play blaring loud music all up and down the line. And there were two people with each soldier. One was the person grading you. And, the, and that was the person that gave you the information. This person, you've, you've checked for a pulse, there is none. You hear the following sound from his chest. Right? Blood is spurting from that wound. Whatever. And that guy was calm. And all he would do is tell you the situation. And anything you checked, he knew exactly what you were checking if you were following procedure. And he would tell you the information that you would get if it was, you know, things like, the guy's dead. The guy next to him was sitting there going, You're going to kill him! You're going to kill him! You're doing the wrong thing! Why? To simulate distress. So that by the time you actually ended up in that position for real, none of the information was new information. Avoiding normalcy bias. Avoiding delay in decision making. Avoiding poor situational awareness. So that you would just do what you're supposed to do. That you would run a process. And there's a process. I come up, I see this, this is what I see. If I see this, I check for this. If I find this, I do this. If I find this, and there's times where the decision is, sorry, you're not going to make it. I have to go take care of somebody else. And that's reality. And I think that is part of why I maybe have this kind of unique view of these two concepts coming together. But I have to tell you, we talked about situational awareness all the time in the military. I never heard the term normalcy bias until after I started doing the show and Swanson brought it up on the forum. I'd never heard it before. But when I heard it, and I heard what it was and how it worked and the dynamics behind it, it was like the last piece of a jigsaw puzzle for me. It made everything co cohesive. And it made everything make sense. And it explained to me why sheeple are sheeple in the first place. They're not bad folks. You know, part of it is the processing of new information. Once a person's given too much new information in too short a condensed matter of time, um, they become unreceptive to that information because they, they've gone into the mode where they can't process it now. They've backlogged it like a computer system. You overload it with input, and it just it just stops. Maybe it needs a reboot. That's the type of thing that happens with what they call information overload. And if that information is negative information, it'll happen faster. 
people do not like to think about a lot of the things that we talk about as causative factors of, uh, of why we need to be planning for, for disasters and emergencies. To think about the very fact that your government is destroying currency right now. That the United States dollar is absolutely being destroyed. And we don't know how long that process could take. It could be destroyed in five years. It could make it another 50 years. We don't know. But we do know that the continuous growth of the money supply, unabated, with no controls over it, can only have one result. Hyperinflation, devaluation, and eventually collapse. Losing our position of prominence in the world is the world's financial power. Gone. That that, that day will come. Is that a comfortable thought? Most people that listen to this show are acutely aware that they may have to deal with that situation at some point in their lifetime, or some degree thereof. That they may not live to see the final total destruction of the United States dollar. Or they might. But they're definitely going to see some level of it, that they've seen it already. That all we have to do is look at what money bought in 1960 and look at what money buys in 2010, and we can see the process at work. We can see the devaluation of money. All we have to do is say, if I had $10,000 under my mattress, it would have bought almost what $100,000 will buy today if that was 1940, that I had that $10,000. So, if I'm an old man who put that $10,000 under my mattress... Essentially, somebody stole $90,000 from me in today's money over those years. But that is the process at work on our currency. Do you see why people don't want to be situationally aware of that? Is that comfortable? Does that leave you to really worry that much about the temperature of your swimming pool in the wintertime? And if whether or not you can afford a solar heating unit to keep it warm? Not causes you to think about a little bit more important things. If you're 30 years old and putting money into a 401k and an IRA, etc., is it comfortable to be situationally aware that all of that effort and work may one day be for nothing? You may be cashing in a million dollars for 50000 whatever they come up with to replace the currency with after it fails? Am I saying it's going to happen? No. Am I saying it's possible? Absolutely I'm saying it's possible. Is it comfortable? No. See how all these things come together. I want you to start understanding why occasionally I talk about the economy, why occasionally I talk about politics and governmental policy and governmental response. Because that's part of your situational awareness. Look at two totally different disaster possibilities. One that seems like the government has nothing to do with it, big weather event. Great big giant ice storm is coming. Okay? We look at the weather channel, there it is, big giant pink clouds of ice. 100 mile thick storm coming right at you. Time to get prepared, be situationally aware, right? Government has nothing to do with that. Can't blame Obama for the ice storm. Not even I would do such a thing. 
Wouldn't blame Bush, wouldn't blame Obama, wouldn't blame any of the prior or, or future ass clowns that will run this country. No way. Would I blame them for that ice storm? But, you know what? You better be situationally aware of the incompetence of your government and the delay and response of your government so that you take every step you can to provide for yourself while you're going to be dealing without systems of support, where you're going to be iced in and can't go anywhere, where your electricity will be shut down, where you might have branches falling onto your vehicles or your home, damaged unto your property. And you'll have some period of time where no one will be able to help you even if they want to. Well, that's government and politics. Come into that. Economics come into that. Without a fundamental understanding of economics, you don't know how to properly plan for this event economically. And you don't understand the economic impl implications. If you see a great big ice storm about to hit in late spring in the Midwest United States, and one of the stocks or mutual funds you're holding is highly invested in agricultural production, it's time to start thinking about where that investment is. Now, it might actually be very good if it's one class of investment. If it's a class of investment that's basically buying the future value of the commodity, a future, you've probably lucked into something despite others' misfortune. So if we're going to have a severe impact on the winter wheat harvest, because an ice storm beats it to hell, at a time when it shouldn't have happened, right before harvest, and a lot of the crops ruined, then that's a good investment to hold on to now, isn't it? But if it's an investment in a company whose production was based there, whose production will now be low and will now lose money, maybe you need to really quickly, before you, you lose your power, log into that E-Trade account and move that investment somewhere else. See, situational awareness, protecting not just your home, but your finances. How can you do that if you don't have a fundamental understanding of economics and the politics of the world? Another thing that we do in the survival-minded world is we do things like own physical metal, gold, silver. I had a conversation with my business partner last night from the company that I used to work full-time that I just kind of you know, do some part-time stuff with now. We were sitting around chatting over a glass of wine. And this guy's very, very smart, and he's worked a hell of a lot more money than I am, and probably more money than I'll ever be. And he's got such a great investment portfolio that he's made money right through all of, this, all of these troubling times. He's actually doing better now than he's ever done before. And we were talking about gold and silver, and he was talking about how he holds gold funds and silver funds and some metal ETFs and some stocks, and the way that he has all of that put together. And I said, do you own physical gold and silver? And he said, no. I said, well, you need to. He goes, yeah, it's not a bad idea. And this guy's international, by the way. He's, he's here uh, legally as, as a, uh, I guess, a resident alien, I guess is the way you would term it. Um, but he has an international passport. He travels internationally. In a situation where things got really dire here, one of the best moves he might be able to make early on is to get the hell out of here. Well, if he went into a place where people are seizing assets and things like that, I'm like, until you can get to your paper assets that are held in, 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 in different locations, do you understand how valuable something as small is five ounces worth of gold that fits in a pocket, 
that you can go to any country in the world and exchange that. He was like, you know what, I need to do that. So here's an example of somebody that's so tuned in, but missing a very basic component of why metal has so much value in the first place. It's not just an inflationary hedge. It's portable, it's anonymous, and it's immediately exchangeable for local currency in any nation under God's green earth, or under God's sun. Right? Any nation on God's green earth, however I was trying to phrase that. If I leave right now with 30 pounds of silver, and I go to any country, I can get a fairly known fixed value of local currency in any nation in the world for that 30 pounds of silver, or 5 ounces of gold, or 10 ounces of gold. Without situational awareness of it's more than another class of investment, it has advantages of being physically possessed, portable, relatively small versus its value, and exchangeable for local currencies globally, without that situational awareness, even someone that's highly tuned in misses something that seems so obvious to us. I think I want to really kind of go over with you one more time the concept of doing mini-threat assessments and on-the-fly planning. I want you to make this a project for yourself for the next couple of weeks. Whenever the military is planning an operation, even an operation in, in peacetime in a peaceful territory, they'll do a threat assessment. And they'll enact countermeasures based on that threat assessment. When I was in Honduras in 1991, there was no active war going on, but there were, you know, some people that were unhappy that there was an American military presence in Honduras. So part of the threat assessment was, even at that time, hey, we might have to contend with IEDs. Right? They didn't call them IEDs back then. They called them bombs. So one of the things that was decided was that we would take all the floors of the vehicles, at least in the compartment where people would be, and sandbag the floors. And then the geniuses in logistics said, hey, we're going to need lots of sandbags where we're going anyway. When you get there, just pile them all up in one location, and we'll put together a detail, and we'll assemble them throughout. And we ended up taking all of those sandbags that were pre-filled as part of the threat assessment and putting them on the stakes that were um, held that were holding the tents up. So that if somebody fell and landed on a stake, it wouldn't go through their face. Because that had already happened on a previous deployment. One soldier threw a frisbee during some recreation time. The other one tripped over one stake, fell on a stake, and a wooden stake about an inch in diameter went through the guy's face. Not a pointed stake. A blunt puncture. It was a pretty nasty picture they showed us. But they, because they were situationally aware that that could occur, they knew that they put a sandbag on top of that. If you fell on it, you weren't really going to get hurt. Additionally, since the ground was soft, it would help hold the stakes down and prevent collapses of these large, these are very large wood frame GP medium, GP large tents. So if eight soldiers sleeping in a GP large tent, and that big beam comes down, you could end up with somebody severely hurt or killed. So this is a countermeasure, all situational awareness. Right? Well, you can perform minor threat assessments in your daily life. Try it. I'm walking to the mailbox. Threat assessment. Some maniac could come flying down the road. I need to be aware of that. That's it. I see a person approaching. I don't recognize them. They're a stranger in my neighborhood. 
they could be a threat. I'm not going to go out and run out and beat them with a tire iron. I'm just going to pay attention to what they're doing. It's part of my threat assessment. If that person takes an action, what would be the most likely action that I would see that I would perceive them as a threat? Well, if I see them walk across the street and look in the window of one of the neighboring houses, that's probably wrong. What would my response be? Unless you're armed, and even if you are, it's probably not a good idea for your response to be, hey, buddy, what the hell are you doing? It might be to continue to observe, procure a means of communication, be ready to dial 911, hope that you're wrong, but the second that you go, yeah, that's just not right, immediately dial 911, right? I've got suspicious activity in my neighborhood. My neighbor's not home. There's a guy looking his windows. He just went in his backyard. He didn't pull up in any kind of service vehicle or anything. I've never seen him before. And it may never happen in a million years. But it will train your mind to start doing it all the time. If you do this for two weeks, if you make a conscious effort for the next two weeks, to every place you go, do a miniature threat assessment and a miniature contingency plan. Just in your head. You don't actually have to do anything physically. You just have to think about it. After about two weeks, you'll form a pattern in your mind. You'll find yourself doing this for the rest of your life. And you'll find that you're very gonna seldom going to be in that mindless state ever again where you're not really thinking about your situation at all. You might be in a, a much more relaxed state. Because what will happen is you'll come into a new situation with new information. You'll take your 8 to 12 seconds to process your new information and form a contingency plan and a threat assessment with all the information that you already have. Once the plan is in place, you'll know that something goes wrong. You're already likely to know the most likely event to occur, and you already have a contingency plan. And it puts you in a completely relaxed state from that point forward. And the only time that you're going to find yourself uncomfortable is when you occasionally then slip into a lapse state where you don't do your threat assessment, and then a little inkling in the back of your head will go, something's not right, and you'll go, oh, I didn't pay attention. I haven't been paying attention for a while. And at that point, you'll feel uncomfortable. But once you're done with that situation, you'll start to feel comfortable again. And you'll start to feel relaxed again. So... I really hope that makes sense, and I hope this has been a good show, and I want you to really work on this. I want you to think about how important this is to your lifestyle planning, and to your contingency planning, and to your survival planning. Situational awareness impacts every part of your life. It's not just for the guy with the concealed weapon walking down the street in a dangerous neighborhood. Situational awareness impacts you when you buy a car, when you buy a house, when you're digging a garden. When you're using a power tool, when you're using a knife, when you're practicing bushcraft and in the wilderness with primitive skills, when you're hunting. And normalcy bias is always your enemy. There's nothing to worry about here. Normalcy bias. Not as obvious as the lady you scream at in the disaster movie. Right? That's why it's much more dangerous. That's why it's much more insidious. There's an old saying that a clock that's five minutes wrong is more dangerous than a clock that's five hours wrong. The clock that's five hours wrong, when it says 10 p.m. and it's 5 p.m. and the sun's out, that clock's wrong. The clock that's five minutes off 
you believe, you miss your flight. That's how normalcy bias is. The extreme is the overburdened, stressful situation that most people that listen to this show are far too aware of reality to ever end up in. But the subtle normalcy bias, I have plenty of time. I don't have to worry. I don't have to plan yet. Everything's going to be okay for now. We've got a good five years. We don't have to worry. Uh, what could happen? We're just out to dinner. That's the subtle normalcy bias that creeps into your life. And the beauty is, it's like a light switch. As soon as you practice situational awareness and threat assessment, it's gone. It's banished. So do that for yourself. It's important. It may be the very thing that saves your life or saves the lives of those around you. Let me conclude with one final thought. That person that's with you that's totally situationally unaware... It's not just about saving their ass in a bad situation. Often, if you don't have a contingency plan that includes them, that person can get you killed. That's why when they practice the drill of being at a restaurant, sitting at a table, that they generally put somebody with you, because people seldom go to restaurants alone. And that person plays the part of someone who's really not part of the fight that needs to be put down on the floor. Because if they freak out and start screaming and create a target, trust me, the reason you kick that table over and get behind it isn't because it will stop bullets. Odds are, most restaurant tables that you sit at aren't going to stop even a 9mm. You've got concealment, not cover there. You're trying to create a situation where you create a small profile. You're harder to see. Hopefully the person in that deranged state is not taking careful aim. You do, you react, you take the shot, you end the situation. But that panicked person with you can destroy all of that. So you have to factor others in, including people that will not be willing participants in your planning. If you have a spouse that's resistant to this, that just does the fingers in the ear and the la-la-la thing, it doesn't want to think about, and everybody is your friend, you better have a plan for what to do in a situation where you have to account for them as well. Because it is going to save their ass, but it may save your ass as well. And you have to self-preserve. Because if you don't, then the people around you that aren't prepared have no one to take care of them. That's how important this stuff is. This is life-saving, critical concepts that you've received today on the Survival Podcast. This is more important than how much food you have stored. This is more important than a backup generator. There are people that if you went into their homes that have died in emergencies, that actually had every single thing they needed to survive. But a failure to plan meant that even though they had the things that were necessary, normalcy bias kicked in, and they just sat there and they took it on the chin. And they either suffered and or died because of it. Whereas a well-thought-out individual could be given the same resources and actually make it. It all comes down to that one fundamental fact I keep telling you. What you do matters. So take some steps. Practice threat assessment. Practice contingency planning. And practice heightened situational awareness for the next two weeks. I'd like to hear from you guys over time. As you do this, how it changes your thought process. Come back to this episode on the blog and comment often. I want to hear it. I think we can evolve a real story here where people can learn from each other and we can all heighten our awareness together. 
This has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.